This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 15, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution stripped state legislatures of the power to choose U.S. senators. Is it time for repeal? Todd Zawicki is a foundation professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. He believes the Senate could once again be a bulwark against encroaching federal power if senators will return to their role as protectors of states. George Mason himself was an advocate for having state legislatures decide how U.S. senators were selected. What was the rationale at the time for having senators be selected in in well, one man in this manner. George Mason wasn't alone in that. In fact, one of the things you read in the Federalist Papers is that uh, um, they say among the various proposals, including direct election of senators, it was proposed at the time. This was really the only one that was acceptable, the one that was most congenial to public opinion, is how Madison said it, and it was one of the least controversial aspects of the original Constitution. And there was really two different reasons why they did it. The uh, the primary reason was structural, uh, which is it was seen as a linchpin of bicameralism and federalism. Uh, The second aspect of it was uh, the notion of indirect election and the kind of people who would be elected uh, uh, to the United States Senate as a result of the indirect election. What most people are interested in and where it ended up serving its most important function was on that first part of being a, uh, a, a bulwark for bicameralism and federalism. The House represented popular opinion. The the Senate then represented the interests of states themselves. Exactly. State legislators elected United States senators. And one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the early days of the republic, what you see is is that – well, representatives were referred to as representatives of the people. Senators were actually referred to as ambassadors of the state government to the United States government, which, which really uh, reinforced that notion that they were representing the states as states as opposed to the, the people. I requested to talk to you specifically because uh, when I was visiting my home state of Kentucky recently, I was presented with a petition uh, from a woman who I believe was a Tea Partier. She showed me the petition. I kind of rolled my eyes. I said, what is this petition? She says, we want to repeal the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. I was like, oh, wow, that's actually very interesting. So what is this interest, this new interest in repealing the 17th Amendment? Well, the Tea Party does seem to have uh, engaged on the issue for which I'm very pleased uh, because I think that we, we have not appreciated the impact of the 17th Amendment, which was passed in 1913 and was sort of the twin of the 16th Amendment, which uh, unleashed the uh, federal income tax on us. I think that the interest today um, really comes from the notion of federalism. And I think, you know, what the framers understood that they forgot in 1913 was that the federal government really has the power to basically crush the state uh, governments underneath them. And what you see when they talk about uh, the why the Senate was designed the way it was, was that it was designed both to be a way of the states protecting themselves as well as a way of the states basically having a voice in Washington. And I think that's what people see today uh, is the is growing federal government and sort of uh, uh, capturing the states as sort of errand boys of the uh, of the national government. To the politics of the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment, most states don't they already explicitly tie the election of U.S. senators, even if the Seventeenth Amendment were to go away, uh, 
senators are now selected in a manner designated by state legislatures. Most states now have their senators selected by, uh, explicitly by the will of the people. Anyway. What we see in the Federalist Papers is, in Federalist 51, is an incredibly crucial insight, which is what Madison recognized. And what he says is that uh, um, in order for the Constitution to work, you have to have the the interest of the man aligned with the constitutional rights of the place. The interest of the man must be aligned with the constitutional rights of the place, such that the man's own, the, rep, the senator's own self-interest is designed to carry out the uh, the constitutional responsibilities for which the office is created in the in the case of the Senate in order to uh, uh, serve as part of the bicameral system in order to frustrate special interest faction it's very clear that they were that that was one of the functions of the Senate the other is to protect the states as as states um, what we saw over time was that the state legislatures designed a variety of different ways in, uh, in which to appoint senators. Some preserved the right for legislatures to do it themselves. Some allowed uh, senators to be nominated by uh, direct election. Some essentially went to a system much like the Electoral College, where essentially the populace would vote directly for a senator and then state legislatures would ratify it. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't see anything wrong with different states designing different ways of how they want to select uh, their their senators. And perhaps even if only a handful of states opted for uh, having legislators explicitly choose uh, U.S. senators, that may have uh, sort of a prophylactic impact on future federal policies. I think that's right. And I think that uh, every senator would be uh, reminded of the fact of sort of who who was better who was buttering their bread. I mean, even senators who were elected directly by the people, um, in the fact that the state legislature still had to ratify that, looks like it caused them to act differently, right? I mean, it was still the case that they understood that the state legislatures were making the final decision, and I think there's this growth, and so in some level they were still answerable to the to the state legislatures and the states as states. And what we have today is the exact opposite, right? Which is if we want to have a system where the interests of the man are aligned with the constitutional rights of the place, that's not what we have today. What we have today are senators who are elected just like uh, representatives who really have no incentive to protect the states as states to, for instance, prevent you know this this tidal wave of unfunded mandates being uh, dropped upon the states, where the federal government tells the state governments what they're what they're supposed to do and tells them that they have to pay for it uh, to boot. I think that as as you said, there'd be a prophylactic uh, uh, effect of it, but I think just in in general, it'd be a good reminder as to who they're answerable for to in the end. To what extent has the Seventeenth Amendment muted or written out of the Constitution the Tenth Amendment? To the Constitution. Well, what you see when you read the Federalist Papers is that the framers thought that the 17th, that the original election of the Senate would be both the necessary and sufficient condition for preserving federalism, uh, which is that it would be necessary by allowing the uh, the states to, to check uh, overreaching by the federal government. But they also thought it would be sufficient. They basically said, who in their right mind would think that the states would uh, give up, uh, uh, you know, or that the states would allow the federal government to, uh, to overreach? And so what we end up seeing is that they really didn't build in any other uh, constitutional bulwarks uh, in order to protect federalism. So what we get with the 17th Amendment is essentially a continuation of the idea of federalism as a constitutional value, 
But we take away the idea of having any sort of uh, adequate check on that. And basically, the issue gets dropped in the, uh, uh, the lap of the Supreme Court, who's never had to be in this business previously, right? And the Supreme Court basically ends up fumbling the ball. And so I think the idea was is that you don't have a lot of questions about the scope of the Commerce Clause or the enforceability of the Tenth Amendment prior to the 17th Amendment. It's only when you get the 17th Amendment that you get all this uh, uh, federal activity that then starts disrupting the uh, constitutional balance. What empirical work has uh, traced the impact of the 17th Amendment? There's a lot more work that could be done. I've done some of the uh, the work that's associated with it. And, and what you see really in the historical work that's been done is that it, it looks like senators start to behave differently when it comes to uh, – um, to, to the federal powers before and after the 17th Amendment. So what you see is right after the 17th Amendment is enacted, and there's a glitch in there, obviously, because World War I happened right after that. But what you start seeing relatively soon after the 17th Amendment is enacted are things like the first uh, uh, farm bill. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of these sorts uh, of a, a lot of the, the Congress starting to use its commerce power to uh, to regulate uh, in the name of interstate commerce very aggressively. And what we see is a growth of the federal government, number one. But number two, what we see is a growth in the interest group and special interest influence over the, uh, the federal government uh, beginning in the 20s and, of course, exploding in the 30s and 40s. One final note on that that's kind of interesting to think about is that at the onset of the Great Depression and the New Deal, Republicans actually controlled the majority of the state legislatures uh, at the time of the New Deal, which would have meant presumably a Republican Senate uh, at the time the New Deal came about. And so it's an interesting sort of uh, um, historical sort of question to think about what the New Deal would have looked like had we not had the 17th Amendment before it. Todd Zawicki is a foundation professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. Get your copy of Cato's popular pocket constitution at cato.org.